Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's pod, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party try to kill off Iowa and New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation status. Donald Trump tries to kill off the Constitution over Elon Musk's release of some rehashed Hunter Biden laptop drama. And Georgia closes out the midterms with today's runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Then the bulwark's Tim Miller is back to talk about all the latest nonsense in the Republican Party. Uh, before we start says here that uh, Crooked Coffee's best-selling coffee accessory, the Cold Brewer, is finally back. Just in time for the holidays. You guys going to get some loved ones a Cold Brewer for a stocking sure. stuffer? Sure I am. I don't like and how you're saying it. I think Cold Brew Coffee's great. Yeah, we don't like well, how you're saying it. <laughs> Your tone is terrible. <laughs> a, cold, a Cold Brewer. It's not, yeah. the, it's not the product, it's the brewer. It's a, uh, a brew wave. That's how fast they've been selling. <laughs> Crooked.com slash coffee. That's how you go to get it. All right, let's get to the news. President Biden and the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee just endorsed a dramatic change to the presidential nominating calendar that would end Iowa's first in the nation caucus that's been around for 50 years and push back New Hampshire's first in the nation primary that's been around for 100 years, 1920, first New Hampshire primary. Wow. Under the new proposal, the state of South Carolina would hold the first primary on February 3rd, 2024. Three days later, Nevada and New Hampshire would hold primaries. A week after that, Georgia would vote. And two weeks after that, the last early state primary would be in Michigan. The primary electorates in these states would be far more diverse than Iowa and New Hampshire, but also more moderate which is more reflective of both the general electorate and the coalition that just happened to deliver Joe Biden the nomination in 2020. <laughs> I'll stop there just to get your reactions. Uh, Tommy, mm-hmm. RIP Iowa and RIP caucuses. What do you think? Deserved? Any downsides? Um, I think I said this at the time, but the Iowa Democratic Party kind of buried any hope of the Iowa caucuses going first again when they screwed up the reporting process, or at least I think I said it at the time, I was a little bit distracted by um, uh, accusations from uh, mentally ill Bernie supporters that three of us had rigged the caucuses. But I wish we had. <laughs> I, I didn't see that would have been some power. That would like, cool. like, it, it was really like, oh, you had one job situation. Um, and they didn't deliver on that. And in the past, I think Iowa and New Hampshire's role has been protected by the fact that usually who does the person that does well there goes on to become president, preserves the status quo. That was obviously not the case with Biden, who took fourth and then fifth in Iowa, New Hampshire. The good thing about Iowa, right, it's a small state. You can visit all every county. You can do retail politics. You can potentially do well without spending a ton of money. Iowans take the process really seriously. They ask good questions. They vet the candidates. 
The bad part about Iowa was that caucuses themselves are way too hard. They're time consuming. It's prohibitively hard for disabled people, shift workers, anyone who can't spare like three or four hours on a freezing cold night. It's also a very white state uh, and doesn't come close to matching the diversity of the Democratic Party. So my takeaway is I loved my experience in Iowa. That is obviously um, I look at it through rose colored glasses because Obama won. And there's this I think the the suggestion that a Jimmy Carter could come again and like campaign, do retail stops in Iowa and get vaulted to the presidency. I'm just not sure that's true anymore in an era of, of cable news and the internet and everything else. So um, I think the time had probably come. Change is good. You can't let a couple states own this responsibility forever. It's just, it's a lot of, uh, it's a big gift to the states that get to go first. It really is. Love it as a um, diehard. All right. Hillary Clinton supporter, a sure. puma, if you will. Yep. Um, a puma, a term everyone <laughs> listening understands. <laughs> well, it's a test. It's a test how long you've Party been around. Party unity my ass is that's what it right, stood for. Right. And it was basically a group of Republicans saying they're going to vote for John McCain yeah, instead of that's uh, Barack right. Obama. That's right. Uh, so I assume that you're happy that the uh, Iowa caucuses uh, will soon be gone. Look, it's... um. And should we, should we separate out the death of the caucuses... In general, which mm-hmm. and it looks like under this plan, no state will hold caucuses, or at least that's what Biden yeah. uh, wants. With Iowa itself as a, as the state not get not being in the early window, even as a primary. Yeah, I mean, look, I think one thing. One, I also think it's like, I think the order matters. I mean, Joe Biden is president of the United States because the order didn't matter. Uh, in two thousand eight, I think one thing we I learned it mattered. As- it mattered because of South Carolina. South Carolina mattered. Well, it mattered that eventually they got to a state he fucking won. <laughs> well, there was he had no to start winning in some Iowa. states. That's sort of the hard part, right? It's like right, and but like you know, you've had in, on the Republican side, you've had Rick Santorum win, you've had Mike Huckabee win, you've had Ted Cruz win. Uh, in two thousand eight, there was a lot of narrative as the long primary was unfolding between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. But what determined who won the, the state that followed wasn't what came before. It was the demographics and politics inside of those states. So I think sometimes the order is overblown. I do think it's good to be done with caucuses for all the reasons that Tommy said. Um, look, I think it's a bittersweet goodbye, Iowa. Um, <laughs> as we oh. say, oh. see you later, Rapids. Look, the caucuses. Oh here's the thing. Here's the thing is the caucuses. Oh, my God. The, could cauc- the caucuses could try to drink it till they make it. But even if oh, Iowa decided good. to go to court and sue city, everyone would know that they were just council bluffing. Are you trying to say that this is Iowa's Waterloo? It is. I mean, I mean, and they're going to have to Grinnell and Barrett, frankly. I was going to end on Waterloo. <laughs> I was, that was my I big was waiting finish. for you, but you that paused. Was my big, that was my you big, shouldn't have paused. That was my big close. No, I think it's good. I think the one thing that, like, I think that there's a good argument against South Carolina being first, but the one reason I think it's a positive if it does happen is that it is maybe a place that has the potential to do what Iowa did and that it was smaller and it's a place where people could go and like kind of candidates could live there and 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 you could hopefully see the same kind of like seriousness of purpose that people in Iowa uh, applied, which I think is the one sad thing to leave behind. I think it also is good that a candidate can live there. And even as like politics has become more nationalized and kind of more beholden to uh, 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 kind of broader storylines, I think that there's still like the fact that Bernie basically fought Iowa to the tie, the fact that Barack Obama managed to win, the fact that Pete Buttigieg uh, uh, narrowly semi won the Iowa caucus, even though we never really got uh, the results. Uh, try as we did to uh, try, rig it for him. Try as we did to rig it for him. Uh, all of those, I think, are a testament to the fact that like, it's good that there's a place you could go where the national story isn't as important, but 
beyond that, I say, uh, no, no more Iowa. Thank you. And also hotter in South Carolina. It'll be nice that people don't have to go to Iowa and New Hampshire. Like it's December and January. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's true. Although New Hampshire's still up there. Well, yeah. Listen. Yeah. Um. No, that is my biggest concern. Is I worry that with the media environment the way it is, um, there's already a head start that candidates get who have name recognition, who have money, who can get garner national attention. And the things you do to garner national attention are not necessarily um, the things that would make you the best candidate or the best president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so losing sort of the focus on retail politics and losing the focus just on organizing, you know, uh, on sort of grassroots organizing would worry me. I'm, I'm not saying that that will go away completely, but that would, that would, and I think you're right. South Carolina is a small enough state that you could still sort of live there, camp out and, uh, and, and still meet a lot of people. And like as much as a caucus, I think, is a flawed and an undemocratic process in a lot of ways, the fact that it requires you to spend so much time did lead it to be the kind of thing where like candidates were getting really substantive questions all the time. Like I remember in like the final days of 08, uh, both Obama and Hillary were giving these hour and 10 minute meandering answers that were like, they were really losing it. But the reason they were doing that is because they were trying to answer all the questions that they were getting and they were getting really specific, really (laughs) intense questioning from Iowa voters. So like that part, I do think it's sad to see go, but maybe you can find it elsewhere. Tommy, what do you like about this plan overall, just going beyond uh, Iowa specifically uh, and anything you don't like? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I debuted in my mouth a little bit at Lovett's um, <laughs> explanation earlier and his suggestion that, you know, South Carolina what? voters are hotter than Iowans. I think that was rude as well. I uh, meant sexier. I, uh, meant, I meant raw sexual chemistry. Is the, what I the, meant. the other thing about caucuses that were actually good is in the Iowa caucus, at least your second choice matters. You couldn't just like torch your opponents because if you... The, well, I won't get into all the math, but if your opponent wasn't viable, you wanted their supporters to come to you. Anyway, overall, I think change is good. I'm really surprised and confused about why there's only three days between South Carolina, the first state, and then Nevada, New Hampshire, the second state. In 2020, mm. it went Feb 3, Iowa, February 11th, New Hampshire. This new schedule seems way too squeezed for me. I don't know why you wouldn't want a week so that you can go to both states, like kind of camp out in either space, whatever. Adding Georgia in Michigan obviously goes a long way towards making the primary electorate more diverse. I think that's important. It will also force Democrats to like spend real time in the primary in in swing states, uh, Georgia in particular. But obviously, I think we can't take Michigan for granted, as we learned in, in 2016. Having, you know, they're, like you guys said, South Carolina, New Hampshire near the top. That means retail politics will still be a part of the process. The main criticism is we'll get to in a minute in more depth that South Carolina is not really a contested state in the general. So you'll do all this organizing in South Carolina only for that not to matter. But that is a little defeatist. Like we should be able to change that over time. It's not like Iowa going first meant it was uh, democratic forever. The other thing is Georgia is really expensive no matter where you are in the process. So like that will really incentivize money, I think. Um, I don't know. Mostly it's just going to like upend everything. I think God knows how this will look in the next time there's a contested primary because it could be like what eight years yeah i mean i i like that it forces candidates to compete earlier for a more 
diverse electorate that better reflects what they'll face in the general. And I think that's diversity in terms of race, age, geography, and ideology. I like that it forces candidates to compete in states that will be general election states. I share your worry, Tommy, that having three states all within three days of each other, it's going to sort of cut down on the momentum you get from winning a small state, uh, having been there a while. And then it compounds the problem by then having the next two states after those three states that are three days in a row or like within three days of each other, having the next two states be two very large states, uh, Michigan and Georgia, which so in essence, having sort of a three-day window with three states and then two bigger states as the entire early state window really does mean that uh, the race will be nationalized quicker and favor the candidates with money and name recognition more than it would otherwise. Um, Right, especially you can see like split decisions coming out of the smaller states. And then there's that two-week window before Michigan. And then all of a sudden, like the stakes in Michigan become incredibly high. Yeah, I mean, I you also, used to have the Iowa results and then that night you get on a plane and you have a you fly to New Hampshire, you have a midnight rally, you park there for an entire week. There was often a debate and then you do the same thing in New Hampshire, in, uh, in South Carolina, I mean. I think you're right. It's just, it's so compressed. I just, I don't get why they did that. Well, and speaking of that, like ne- the Nevada Democrats uh, must be pretty pissed because sure. ne- having going on the same day as New Hampshire, Nevada, as we just saw, takes a while to count their votes, and it's in the Pacific time zone. So when people wake up on Wednesday morning, it's the New Hampshire winner that's going to get most of the headlines if New Hampshire ends up going the same day as Nevada. And by the time we find out Nevada, we'll, you know, it'll just be sort of a delegate math thing. It'll be, it won't be as much of a momentum story. Um Maybe. Or this whole thing gets, or it's like there's yeah. unforeseen consequences in ways that this plays out that we can't predict. Well, That's... and the other thing, and then there's the Michigan issue is, um, so Michigan has 139 delegates, which is nearly as many as the combined total from New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. So as a strategy, which we're going to get to in a bit, you could, you could just say, I'm going to skip those first three states. And then just for delegate math purposes, just wait till Michigan. Right. But, but, and, but like we've seen like that's, candidates deciding whether or not to skip Iowa in the past, right? Like it just creates a whole new kind of set of strategic questions that they'll all have to grapple. It depends on the mix of candidates. Yeah. So let's talk about South Carolina. Um, Faz Shakir, who was Bernie Sanders' campaign manager uh, and has been on the pod many times, wrote in the New York Times that the plan is great with the exception of putting South Carolina first, which he argues, quote, would be comical if it weren't tragic because the state is in a battleground, as Tommy mentioned, and isn't trending towards Democrats and is way more ideologically and culturally conservative than the party and the country. Love it. What do you think of Vaz's argument? It was a very it's pretty persuasive. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it, it like, look, Joe Biden is president because he won South Carolina. I think he feels a beholden to what South Carolina did, what Jim Clyburn did. I also think sincerely they believe that this mix of states is the right mix to make sure you're choosing a Democrat who's nationally viable, who's doing well with the constituents you need to win. But at the same time, the point that Faz makes, which I think is a good one, is other than the fact that South Carolina is a smaller state, like what is the argument for South Carolina that doesn't apply to North Carolina, yeah. which is a swing state? That, and, I thought that was the most persuasive point. It's like North Carolina is is a state that it, you know, we won in 2008 and then yeah. we haven't in a while and it's close and putting more resources in there might really help. And like to Tommy's point, yeah, uh, I agree. Like we should think about how we're going to compete everywhere. But the point that uh, 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 like the Biden team has made is like we should not do what we did, which is just 
like seal in in like heart in stone a, a a calendar that we stick to for 50 years we should reevaluate it every once in a while if south carolina starts to move if we think that the way we can compete there of course go to south carolina but why not north carolina a place where we have a democratic governor yeah i do think that's important too that the, the point you just made which is the the biden team and the dnc are basically saying let's now revisit this calendar uh every every four years because as one of you just said like it might this might not none of this might happen <laughs> right because uh, so let's let's talk about why it might not happen i mean number one is if joe biden runs and he runs unopposed then it doesn't matter where all the different states fall <laughs> he's just going to get the nomination and yeah. then by 2028 we could have another conversation entirely his only opponent time itself <laughs> <laughs> so so faz mentions in his piece you know he's a dnc member he says he'll be voting no on the proposal um because of south carolina what are some of the other obstacles to getting this plan approved, Tommy? Well, I mean, you're, you're going to have to have states approve the new primary calendar process, including Republican-controlled legislatures in Georgia. Uh, you're also going to have Democratic officials in Iowa and New Hampshire not go down without a fight. Senator Shaheen is boycotting the uh, the White House Christmas party no in cookies. protest of, of this of this change. Shaheen, so a single cookie. They're going to be mad, you know, and, and they could try to move their schedules around and, you know, push back on this new calendar. But in that will then force the Democratic National Committee to punish them and potentially say your delegates don't count or potentially punish candidates that compete in the state. I think it's going to be hard for states to fight this, though, because ultimately it is President Biden's proposal and that's going to carry a lot of weight um, and they're going to want to listen to him. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. I Look, I, I read Faz's piece, too. I thought it was compelling. I do. You know, he also says that um, it will hurt organized labor, um, which is true. South Carolina is not a strong labor state, but I think having Nevada and Michigan up pretty close to the top gives organized labor uh, a lot of juice in this. I think like the broader point is so much of how the current primary process goes is reported on how strategies are concocted is based on people just kind of doing the last thing and when you completely upend it like this there's not going to be customs they're not there's not going to be the the sort of conventional wisdom that you get a bounce out of Iowa or a bounce out of New Hampshire you know what I mean or that this state always picks the actual winner so like you could see completely different strategies from everybody and God knows how any of it will go. And that's sort of like, in some ways, I think that's the most scary great. and exciting part. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I think it's great. Like there was a piece, uh, you know, there was a piece looking back on the history of the Iowa caucus and talked about how like Jimmy Carter saw an opportunity there that other people didn't. And I do think that there's a problem to how rote all of this has become and how, yeah. how, how much it's driven by the previous cycles. It'll be great to have people thinking this through in a new way. I, I think... Um, we may be underestimating the complete chaos in just setting <laughs> this schedule because like, Tom, you mentioned Georgia, right? So Raffensperger would have to agree uh, to move the Democratic primary in Georgia. We should have said from the outset, Republicans aren't moving any of theirs. They're, They're going to do this the first four states. So They're that cool. would mean that Georgia would have to hold two different presidential primaries on two different dates. So who, Raffensperger, as of the time we were recording this, hasn't commented. So that's that. New Hampshire is going to be a real shit show if this happens end up happening because New Hampshire has a law that says it has to be first no matter what. It doesn't seem that they are likely to change that law even if every democrat, every whiny democrat in New Hampshire who's mad about this decided that they wanted to, 
Sununu, the gov- governor Sununu, who's a Republican, and the House Majority Leader, who's also a Republican, already went on the record saying, we are not changing the law. Well, so, the, there's also so, a question about what the Secretary of State of New Hampshire would have to do, right? Because it's a little bit, yes, they have the they have the ability to move it to make sure they go first, but we don't know what would happen if they are threatened with the fact that their delegates won't be seated. Right. And New Hampshire's, New Hampshire's pissy nonsense is why Iowa had to be a caucus, because they had to be right. the first primary, right? So there's all these stupid dominoes that are just kind of toppling. No, but we know what ha- they would. I think what's going to happen is New Hampshire is going to get their delegates stripped, <laughs> right? Because Sununu doesn't have any incentive to make sure that the delegates get seated. He's just going to say, "No, I'm not changing the law. We can't be in violation of the law. The primary is going to be on the day that it's going to be, and then the DNC would have to decide to strip the delegates or just give in." I also, yeah, like I also like a, you. You can imagine a like this is such an improvement in bringing in all these different states. I think is such a better approach, like. The exact or again, I just think like uh, overanalyzing or just sort of overstating the importance of like the very specific order. I just I just don't think, you know. And so if you ended up with a situation where like New Hampshire went th- went a week before South Carolina and Nevada and then into Michigan, then into Georgia to Michigan, whatever, like it's still bringing it's still achieving the geographic demographic and yeah. like ideological diversity that you want. Well, with the stipulation that we don't know exactly what the order is, is going to be or like if there's any states that are going to fall out of this, what do you guys think the general upending of the nomination calendar, which does seem likely, um, how, how, what do you think that will change about strategy for candidates and campaigns in both 2024 and beyond? I mean, if, if candidates pr- approach it the way they traditionally have, it could mean, you know, you... I think Obama spent 73 days in Iowa, right? Mm. And then probably like 10, 20 in South Carolina. That will likely be flipped. You could see candidates spending 60, 70, 80 days cruising around South Carolina, talking to South Carolina voters. It also means that like your primary task will be reaching someone who's closer to, I think, the kind of median Democratic Party voter, which is, I don't know, say 50-year-old African-American woman who is probably less liberal than the kind of activist base that you find in Iowa. I wonder what this will mean. We mentioned Nevada earlier, John, in that like sort of shortened period. I kind of suspect this means like the Culinary Workers Union in Nevada will be even more powerful because if you have like zero time to focus on the state and organize and turn your people out, like you're going to need the biggest, baddest uh, sort of party bosses in town. And like I do, I worry a little bit about Look, I, we, we should get rid of caucuses, probably like primaries are better. They're more inclusive. We, we want more people to be a part of the process. But I do like the muscle memory that comes from learning how to organize the Iowa caucuses has trained some of the best organizers in the entire Democratic Party, like actually most of them. And I think um, I worry a little bit about like losing that that muscle memory. Yeah, I think you can still get that in a primary in a smaller state, but it's tougher. It's tougher. I think in in the immediate, in 2024, I think this could effectively kill off a challenge from Biden's left or any challenge at all, necessarily. I think this this calendar or any calendar like this is sort of designed, first of all, by getting rid of the caucuses, which usually help more progressive challengers, and also just from moving away from more college-educated liberal voters. And also just any challenge. These are states that are very, very good for Joe Biden in 2024. I also think in the future, or if Biden doesn't run, I think you get more potential state skipping and strategy based on delegate math because you don't know what the momentum will or won't be. I think the whole strategy based on momentum out of states 
it already was sort of fading. And I think that upending the calendar like this will put a bigger dent in it. Just the the one like kind of pushback on that, like just played counter, you know, devil's advocate. Georgia is so big and those media markets are so expensive that you're going to have to raise like $200 million. If let's say you do a Georgia only strategy, you're like, it's a big state, tons of delegates. Let's focus there. The amount of money it would take to play there. It's like, I, I wonder if you can really pull that off and make it worth your while as opposed to a momentum strategy where you can get more bang yeah. for your buck getting a bounce out of small like, I, I guess what we're getting at is who the hell knows well if you're in that case if you're a uh, a tom steyer or mike bloomberg and you have yeah. a shitload of money maybe that's when you do that run it back <laughs> mike <laughs> um i think from a substantive policy standpoint i mean tommy you were talking about the type of voter that you'll you're going to focus on in, in with this kind of calendar it may generate more moderate policy proposals from the candidates. And I I would not be surprised if they spent less time in doing activist forums, right? Like just the type of voter that you're going to have to appeal to in states like these is going to mean that like, like we saw this in the primary in 2019, a bunch of candidates in that primary took positions that Joe Biden's, you know, sort of stepped a little bit away from <laughs> in the uh, in the general election. And the reason they did that is because they were appealing to an activist base that held a lot of sway in caucuses and in some of those early states that may not be true in this new calendar. Yeah. I think those people still hold a lot of sway in online fundraising is going to be sort of the, the challenge mm. and the question. I do wonder, yeah. too. I mean, look. The Iowa caucuses, you saw how it distorted policy in a bad way, like the ethanol subsidies we've all been living with for, for a long time are probably, uh, you know, not the best way to be doing what we're doing. I do worry that, like, will those issues get any say? Will there be any, like, ag forums? Will there be any focus on, you know, certain agricultural issues? I, who knows? Maybe, maybe in Georgia, yes. Maybe in South Carolina. But um, in Nevada, you could just yeah, imagine the these things not coming up. Yeah, and some of these dynamics around sort of pressure from the left, like you know, one of one of the kind of uh, uh, like mini controversies around that uh, came out of a debate out of Texas, right? So it is sort of some of these things are not just dependent on the; it's just the the the, the different groups of the Democratic electorate that are in every state. Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, it's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule Damn. is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to this. squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, mm-hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. All right, let's talk about the Republican Party, which isn't changing its 2024 nominating calendar, but may have a nominee who wants to get rid of the Constitution. Over the weekend, Donald Trump truthed the following in response to the release of internal Twitter emails about Hunter Biden's laptop, quote, Do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner? Or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Crazy shit for sure. Uh, Love it. How much worse is this than the shit he usually says? You know, uh, it's more explicit. It's just more explicit. Uh, You know, like... I've, I'm actually genuinely surprised that it's getting the reaction it's it's getting in the sense that like, you know, when you call for overturning the election or rerunning the election or say uh, mount an insurrection at the Capitol, that means you're not a constitutionalist. I know. I, that's why it was my <laughs> first so, reaction. And so it's like, I actually am quite, <laughs> I am glad he's being this ham fisted and stupid because he's cut off and posting these fucking truths because now it is requiring a response. I mean, the fact that Joe Biden gets these T-balls, like he gets to hit a ball that says Nazis are bad and the next ball says the Constitution is good. Like that is fucking ridiculous. Tommy? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's so brazen. He's such a brazen, clumsy authoritarian that you almost laugh at him. But I mean, you know, you look around the world and... uh, Tearing up the Constitution is really like autocrat 101. It's it's the thing that all these lawmakers literally swear an oath to. So I guess it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about Donald Trump that we didn't already know. It does remind us that he can say literally anything and 95% of elected Republicans will not criticize him for it. Right? Because like, yeah, what's I mean, worse than this? No, I, I, well, we just we've now seen in, in two weeks, we've seen the two worst examples of anything, you know, like Nazi dinner. And then I'm going to write the Constitution. <laughs> I mean, but like he has been telling us since 2015 when he came down the escalator that the rules and laws don't apply to him. 
That, <laughs> that's literally been the one most consistent theme about his first campaign, about his presidency, and about the uh, period from when he lost and tried to steal the election through the insurrection. That's his. That's the biggest theme that he yeah, doesn't believe any r- rules or laws apply to him. Yeah, it's all though. It's getting. Um, we're we're not too many clicks away from uh, jars filled with piss here out of Mar-a-Lago. What is the piss happening? Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, guys. Remember Aviator, <laughs> where I got all my history of Howard Hughes. <laughs> oh, when I hear jars of piss, I think of um, you know. What do you think of lazy dudes, <laughs> lazy college people who pee in wow. pee in jars okay. in their dorm rooms? <laughs> yeah, that's what I think of. Uh, speaking of the T-balls that, that Joe Biden gets, so the White House not only issued a statement that condemned Trump's comments, uh, it issued a follow-up statement from Andrew Bates today, on Monday, that called on every Republican member of Congress to condemn the comments as well. Tommy, the White House doesn't usually respond to every deranged thing Trump says. Why do you think they did it in this case? I mean, I should say we just talked about in the last Monday, Tuesday pod that um, they didn't actually go after the, or at least Biden himself didn't go after the Nazi dinner thing. Yeah. Well, then eventually they, they came around, though. They came around with a statement. Right. Biden. Ha- we still haven't heard Biden talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I think Lo- as Lovett said, I mean, sometimes you're playing T-ball and that thing's just right there sitting on the stand and you want to hammer it. I mean, it is it, it is a 99 to one political issue to call on Republicans <laughs> to, to demand to continue to support the Constitution. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I would I would swing at this pitch and he's a declared nominee who's going to run against President Biden at this point. So, yeah, I would be hitting the shit out of pitches like this. Probably didn't have to do a poll to find out uh, that uh, shredding the Constitution isn't popular with voters. I would love to do that poll, though. It'd be interesting. Oh, God, it'd be like, you know what? There's no... Still like 35, 40. Well, now it's polarized. Yeah, the Constitution is a polarized thing, you know, supporting it. But even like, even the White House statement, there was one part of it that said like, the Constitution is a document that brings us together. (laughs) It was like, there's a, there was a, Anyway, there was a media strategy part of this, too, which is really smart um, that I know, like Brian Boitler and I had this conversation on on offline and, and positively dreadful last week about like what Democrats can do, to sort of call attention to more uh, Republican controversies. And they said, you know, reporters should basically ask Republicans what they think about this, members of Congress. And today they did. So there's like a whole nother round of stories about all these Republican members of Congress Here's some best of uh, Senator Roger Marshall said, um, we should be focused on the problems that matter to us at home. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Constitution that like that is that is yeah, the big, that's a good that, one. Yeah. Um, Rand Paul said you can talk to him about his opinion. But my opinion is that there are no exceptions to the Constitution. Oh, thanks, uh, Rick Rand. Scott said he said he didn't say that because there was another truth today on Monday where Trump said um, I didn't actually I didn't actually. Well, why are they all saying terminate? I didn't use the word terminate. It's like we, we the the fuck the truth says. The truth terminate. is still up. We see the truth. You can see your truth, <laughs> which I guess you're speaking your truth. That's how it works. <laughs> and then he finally said, uh, "They're like, oh, he did say that. He did say it in the truth." And he goes, "Well, I believe we ought to enforce the laws." <laughs> <sighs> they just never miss a chance to disappoint all of us. It's so funny. Uh, so the reason that um, the reason that Trump wants to terminate the Constitution is because. Elon Musk gave um, left-wing turned right-wing pundit Matt Taibbi internal Twitter emails that show Twitter executives granted a few requests from the Biden campaign to take down some dick pics of Hunter Biden. This is a story that the right-wing media is losing its mind over. Is there anything more nefarious here that we didn't already know before the release of what uh, Elon's calling the Twitter the Twitter files? Love it? Uh, well... 
I mean, we got a little like there's a, we got a little color. And basically, one thing you learn, I mean, it's always true, but whenever there's some controversy or crisis involving a giant corporation or organization, you can be sure that what's going inside is not like Machiavellian maneuvering, but just like panicked people trying to figure out what the fuck is going on, right? Like Twitter has said, I think Jack Dorsey has said that uh, taking down, this is about a New York Post story that reported on the Hunter Biden laptop. That's the core of all this. So Twitter basically says that this New York Post story is uh, from hacked materials. They uh, basically don't allow it to be disseminated in a pretty aggressive way. Then over time, they come to reflect on that and view it as having gone too far. The right goes fucking nuts. A bunch of people go fucking nuts. They have basically said that. Internally, you see after the story has been throttled, there's a bunch of people trying to figure out whether or not they should have, whether or not it was right. And as that's going on, they're also getting requests to remove uh, pictures of Hunter Biden's ding dong from the social media platform. Uh, and even Taibbi says that the Twitter was honoring requests for takedowns from both the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign. Reminder, Trump was president at the time. Joe Biden was just a just a man from Delaware, uh, not operating under the auspices of the government and therefore the First Amendment not really applicable. Uh, so I don't really think we learned that much other than the 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 dick pic takedown that is that was news yeah tommy yeah i mean it's certainly like interesting to see how the the you know behind the scenes accounts of how the sausage is made or i guess in this case uh <laughs> struck down but like so, so I, 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 I just that's good tommy <laughs> that's, that's good know, on the fly how the sausage was on how the sausage was rem- all right Sorry, you had it. <laughs> we're good. I shouldn't have helped. No, no. Look, I appreciate your help always. So, I mean, look, some people on Twitter were like, ah, nothing burger, nothing to see here. Eh, I disagree with that. Like, it was interesting. But yeah. like, I love it just said, the fact that this was kind of a messy mistake, it wasn't news. Jack Dorsey copped to that. I think most people in hindsight are like, yeah, that was probably a mistake to block users from sharing this laptop story. But again, like everyone struggled with this decision. The New York Post struggled with this decision. They had to, they turned down the story, I think, before offloading it to some former producer for Sean Hannity who wrote it up and that person now works at Breitbart. So it was a tough call. On balance, they made a mistake. I think it was an honest mistake. But when you consider the role that Russian disinformation played in the 2016 election and the pressure that Twitter was getting and Facebook was getting from the US government to prevent election interference, you can certainly understand it. And so like, I think bigger picture, Elon Musk is creating more problems for himself here because he is pledging to be this person that he's not, which is a transparent champion of free speech. But he stops being those things when they bump up against his interests. And at some point, there's going to be an edge case like this that pisses off his MAGA base or some decision they don't like. And they're going to want the same level of transparency and they're going to be pissed when he doesn't get it. And like, look, pre-Elon Twitter was not perfect. Um, it frustrated all of us at times, but like, you know, <laughs> listen, I, I listened to, um, Kara Swisher's interview with, uh, Yale Roth, I think is how you say his name. The guy yeah. who had the job of, of, you know, trust and safety. And he's a very earnest academic. And what they tried to do was put in place consistent processes to make challenging decisions, knowing that they're all human beings and they're going to screw it up. And Elon has just upended all of that. Like he's playing King and making like impulsive childish decisions and so like i don't know if he wants to be transparent put these documents out to all journalists don't like cherry pick taibi and now barry weiss is the other journalist who will now have access to them i know this because 
I have a very small shrunken social life and I listened to like an hour and a half of his Twitter space on Saturday and actually got to ask him a question before they cut me off. What was your question? I asked him, uh, he had gotten asked by somebody else about whether he would do anything to support protesters in Iran and China and he ducked it. And so I followed up on that and I and he, I was like, look, you say free speech is like critical to the future of civilization. Will Twitter do anything to help free speech in China and Iran with those protesters? Like is their speech critical to the future of civilization? And he basically got mad at me, told me it was a dumb question because they can't connect to Twitter with a VPN. All the little like right wing guys hosting the call started mocking me and then they muted me and they kicked me out and then Seb Gorka asked a question. <laughs> so it was very productive use of everyone's time. And what? And what time was this on the, what, what, what's going on during, what were you doing? I was, I, I was, I was flying so, home Saturday listen, night from DC. I was on, yeah. Cause I was like, I'm like, what time is it in California I right had, now? What is it I was transitioning from world cup soccer games to Georgia LSU. And so look, I didn't, it did no harm. Hannah was doing some other stuff. I, I was, <laughs> yeah. A few things annoy me more than right-wing media and assholes like Elon Musk trying to scandalize what is sort of normal clunky behavior yeah. inside an organization totally. by trying to like release emails, right? Like this is what they did with like, they've done this forever. Like I went back and looked at the timeline on all this because you sort of forget how this un unfolded yeah. in the, in the weeks before the election. But it's like, you're right. There was good reason to believe that a, a foreign government would once again interfere in our election on behalf of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's, intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies were putting out that warning at the time. Right. Mark Zuckerberg in an interview had said, oh, they told us specifically that this was going to happen. And so when the Hunter laptop story comes up, they're like, oh, it could look exactly like this, right? Like it looked like that kind of thing. So what they do is they make the decision, Twitter and Facebook and some other social media companies to throttle back in a really significant way, the ability to share that story for a couple days. Then there was an uproar and then they realized, okay, we're, we shouldn't throttle it back anymore. Now, the effect that had was to increase the Google search interest on the Hunter Biden story by fivefold overnight because the story was then that social media companies were restricting the story. In a poll taken about a week before the election, 77% of all voters had heard of the Hunter laptop story. 40% had heard a great deal of it. A plurality thought that Hunter did something wrong and had corrupt business dealings. But just 3% of voters said that the Hunter Biden issue was the most important issue in deciding to their vote. Turns out he wasn't running for president. Turns out he wasn't running for president. So this whole idea that they, they, they tipped the scales of the election on behalf of the, it's bullshit. No. And then Jack Dorsey over a year ago was saying that it was a mistake initially and that it was basically inaccurate that the Hunter laptop story was based on planted information or some foreign op or whatever it was. So, yeah, it was a mistake, but it was not nefarious and it didn't have any fucking effect. The people who want you to believe that the Hunter Biden laptop story suppression was critical to the outcome of the election are the same people who mock liberals who get upset about Russian interference in 2016. You can't have both. And again, hey, Republican friends, if you don't want to be treated like you are people who collude with foreign governments and peddle and sketchy information, then don't 
collude with foreign governments and conspire with WikiLeaks, et cetera, and all the shit you did in 2016. Like they created the context where this kind of action would happen from these social media companies. doesn't change the fact that on balance, it was probably the wrong decision for them to throttle that story for a couple of days. But like, you, are we supposed to act like Rudy we Giuliani was credible? Give me a break. And, and we already knew that. They've already are, said that. We've already known that for a year. And so Elon Musk is at best ignorant and at worst an asshole for doing this. And he, look, he said at one point, oh, I didn't read all the Twitter files. So you just gave all that to Matt Taibbi, who like is a bad actor with, without good intentions. And all we learned that was new was that there were some embarrassing pictures of Hunter Biden um, that didn't have anything to do with the business dealings or the scandal, the corruption or anything that he might ultimately get charged for by DOJ had nothing to do with any of that. It was some dick pics that the campaign asked to take down. That was it. And, you know, the like. Elon, he has he has bought this thing. He is acting as though he is some tribune for 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 uh, to create a global public square where people can speak and have a dialogue. And he's going to defend free speech. There is this big space between outright misinformation and like hard right bigotry uh, and, you know, whatever, NPR. (laughs) There's this big space (laughs) in between where I think some of the biggest obstacles to our being able to actually have this utopian space that is impossible that he wants to create. And the thing that stands in its way is not just these heinous examples of the most obvious and, you know, disgusting kinds of uh, hate and lies lies and speech. It's sensationalism it's noise it's it's hyping things that aren't actually a big deal it's feeding into people's conspiratorial mindsets it's treating everything as john said as as some kind of nefarious plot rather than people just plodding along trying their best that heat is like the big is is probably day to day the biggest problem we have in having any kind of political debate in this country and no one is doing more damage to it and actually making twitter less usable and less likely to survive than Elon Musk who is wants to be both the mayor of this big fucking town and also its chief troll and destroyer so it's like fuck you what a waste of f- everyone's fucking time and he's also just like he's trying to just juice engagement on twitter cuz he clearly made yeah. Matt Taibbi roll this all out through via the most confusing twitter thread you could possibly have structured it took oh, hours of clearing it's just very annoying but like he just wants people on twitter which you know he's just like he's just doing like earned media ops but the other thing he did over the weekend that i just wanted to fly quickly is he tweeted uh, in response to somebody uh, i've seen a lot of concerning tweets about the recent brazil election if those tweets are accurate it's possible that twitter personnel gave preference to left-wing candidates so what he's doing there so right like Brazil was a military dictatorship until very recently. They just went through an election where a modern day fascist named Jair Bolsonaro narrowly lost to Lula da Silva, the former president. And there was real concern about the potential for political violence. And it it got really close. He is just throwing gas on that fire before the transfer of power actually occurs without knowing the facts. And it's like, hey, man, if you care about like truth and transparency, that's great get the facts and then tweet about it. So don't do this. I saw that. And this is an example of Elon's brain being poisoned by Twitter because he is now, he he now follows and, and interacts with 
all of these supposed free speech advocates who are actually just right wing fucking trolls who are feeding him. So all he's encountering is all this disinformation, misinformation about not only things that are going on here in the United States, but all over the world. And so now he's just regurgitating to him because that's his information environment. Well, because he's also a guy that's been in a fucking boring tunnel for the last 15, <laughs> 20 years. He's not like he's not he's not familiar with the the organizations that are advocating for democracy in Brazil. He's not familiar with the contours of this debate. He's not familiar with the contours of the American political debate about who's an honest interlocutor, who's full of shit. He is making it up and figuring it out as he goes because he's just a fucking rich guy who built a car, who bought a social media platform. And now we're all along for the ride. (laughs) And worse than that, he is exposed in foreign countries unlike Jack Dorsey was. Like, so Elon Musk wants to move some of his manufacturing to India, for example. He wants to sell a bunch of Teslas in India. The Indian government we know in 2021 went to Twitter and said, take down these hundreds of accounts that have been criticizing the Modi government. That is going to happen again. And Elon is going to bend, if not break, when this happens. And I guarantee you, he won't be transparent about it. And guess what? Uh, a bunch of uh, you know tech workers and a content moderation council, that's messy and it doesn't get it right. But the alternative is what we have now, which is a dictator, and a <laughs> which Twitter is Elon poll. Musk make, make, making all the rules himself. Making all, yeah, and a Twitter poll that could be, you know, juiced by a whole bunch of bots. That's his own staff says are just nonsense. They're all juiced by bots, which is his primary beef with the platform. Bots. Absurd. All right. Uh, before we talk to Tim, uh, there is a runoff election uh, Tuesday, today in Georgia between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. More than 2 million votes have already been cast, and turnout seems to be higher in Democratic areas. Polls also seem to be favoring Warnock by a few points, but it's a close enough race that a surge of Republicans on Election Day could very easily tip the race toward Walker. Guys, any final reflections on how both campaigns and candidates have closed out this relatively short runoff? Love it. Uh, Look, I think Herschel Walker is leaving it all out there on the field, as you would say in football. Uh, He has uh, never been worse as a candidate. And uh, uh, I think that's really going to make the difference. I hope. I hope. I hope. How about that? Tommy, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Walker seems to be closing out the campaign by dealing with more allegations of abuse that are incredibly troubling and seeming to misstate which um, uh, entity he's actually running for. It seemed like he was suggesting he was running in the house or maybe he was just confused about the yep. the makeup of the house versus the senate i don't know he's an absolute disaster um it's uh embarrassing to everyone involved and uh i'm just praying that georgia voters turn out and uh send yeah. Raphael warnock back to the senate because the guys and like i listened to his interview that i think you did a love it it was like he's such an inspiring hopeful amazing person like we're lucky to have that man in the u.s senate it's crazy that we were even considering any state would consider replacing him with herschel walker and like I can make fun of how bad a candidate Herschel Walker is, but like I do think because he is so bad, there is I think a, a reason to be concerned about people being complacent and thinking it's in the bag. When mm-hmm. you know we're this is coming out Tuesday morning, people still need to turn out. They need to vote. Republicans turn on their turnout machine. We have no idea what happens when they do. Yeah, I did see um, a, uh, a form, Trump's former state director in 2016 in Georgia, who had said that, uh, and he was in Playbook today, and he said he had been hopeful that Walker would win this runoff. But um, he, now he's a little less hopeful. But importantly, what he said is he's like this, the machine that the turnout machine and the organization that Stacey Abrams helped build over the last 10 years is just unbelievable. <laughs> and that's what makes him most worried that they are. Um, that So that is that is good news. 
And um, it's also, you know, good news that uh, the, the Vote Save America community has really stepped up uh, in these last couple of weeks um, after stepping up all through the midterm. So we just want to thank everyone who has stepped up uh, for VSA. Um, you've raised over $175,000 for the Warnock campaign and the runoff and over $70,000 to support America Votes organizers uh, through Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund. Uh, you've contacted 150,000 Georgian voters with the goal to call an additional 2,000 voters by the time the polls close this evening. So that is fantastic work. And if you're hearing this Tuesday morning, there's still time to get out the vote before polls close. Uh, listeners can go to votesaveamerica.com slash volunteer to sign up. All right. When we come back, Love and I will talk to Tim Miller. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace. Yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Stunning backdrop there. You going for a, a Room Raider score? A 10 out of 10 out of 10 there? Uh, you know, this is just my... Uh... My kitchen here, John. You know? <laughs> yeah, about to say that's not a kitchen. That's a kitchen that belongs to a gay person. That's a gay yeah. kitchen. I am. I'm just trying to balance out my football hat with a gay little uh, plant and wallpaper combo. We get it. You're a man without a party. Let's let's keep this moving. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up, love it. <laughs> Joining us today, writer at large at the Bulwark, author of the best-selling book "Why We Did It: A Travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell," friend of the pod, Tim Miller. Tim, welcome back. Hey, boys. And I'm so happy to see that it's Love It and not Vitor this time. There were some rumors in my Twitter mentions mm-hmm. the last time that there was gay drama and that Love It, Love it snubbed me uh, and was no. faking. Wow. There, so it wasn't. Multiple no. people tweeting that at me. I look, Tim, as I texted you, uh, it was a true testament that I liked the book because I finished it even after I missed the interview because of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, do, I appreciate I that so, text. Yeah. I appreciate that text, but this is the proof is now in the pudding that you, yep. you know, would say it live in front of other yeah. people, not just in private. And you, <laughs> and you know what you did. I do. That's are, true. are you two okay? Yeah, we're good. We're good. Okay. We're good. Tim, your latest bulwark piece, uh, yeah. a real banger. The headline is <laughs> No, you do not have a right to post Hunter Biden's dick pic on Twitter. Constitutional. Um, right. You do. <laughs> you do have a right, do, I guess, but you don't have a constitutional right. A constitutional right. Post. That's correct. Yeah. So, you do a great job of uh, cutting through a lot of the bullshit around this story that MAGA world is hyperventilating over, though that hasn't stopped the hyperventilating. How much of an appetite do you think there is to keep the story going? And do you think it'll have uh, traction 
beyond the hardcore fanboys. Oh, there is unending appetite. Uh, it's, have you guys turned on Fox today? I mean, this is leading leading the leading the hour, uh, leading every hour. Um, concerns about constitutional rights related to posting Hunter Biden's hog. Um, I, I don't know <laughs> whether um, I'm not certain. Uh, uh, whether, you know, how long that this this will have success with the Republican base, uh, but it continues to draw interest right now. Uh, one of the, I think, you know, two or three affirmative policy platforms of this incoming Republican con- Congress, that one of the things they really do care about is making sure people have a right to post Hunter Biden's penis on the internet if they want to, and that the platforms cannot cancel them for it. Uh, so I think they intend to keep talking about it. I do not, I do not get the sense... You know, I live here in Oakland now. I'm a coastal elite, so but I do not get the sense that it's resonating among <laughs> among the swing voters that cost the Republicans their so red wave. So you don't think Hunter Biden's penis has become a surprisingly big issue? <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I think it's a growing issue. It's a grower, but I don't. I don't, uh, I don't think it's showing up in the polls. <laughs> uh, there's not a ton of evidence. You know, I did travel a little bit during the midterms. For my various media <laughs> endeavors, and I, I didn't hear a lot about it, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania and Arizona uh, among the swing voters. I don't. Did it show up in your focus groups, John? We're not hearing about it in the bulwark focus groups on the focus. Group no, podcast. I did not hear anything about. I didn't mean, pop up. It, <laughs> every once in a while, you do get a, a something Hunter Biden, and then there's something nefarious uh, attached to it. But that's about it. What's your read on Elon Musk's role in all this? And just as a fellow Twitter addict. Yeah. How concerned are you that he's our uh, our chief supplier now? I'm very concerned. I did a whole Snapchat episode this week about being a Twitter addict and being concerned about uh, about having Elon and just my mix. My it's a troubling relationship, you know, that you have to like, you know, it's like you're in a bad in a bad uh, have a you know abusive boyfriend, abusive spouse uh, type situation. Um, but I'm pressing forward. I'm going down with the ship on Twitter. Um, I, I think that this reveals the Twitter files thing. The biggest thing it reveals is just, you know, there's a lot of, I think, occasionally correct criticism of the left and the media ecosystem that they're kind of out of touch with the concerns of regular folks. And, you know, you're talking about sometimes things that, 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 um, you know, in using language that regular people don't care about. I, I just think this is a prime example that the Republicans and the, like, contrarian tech bro new republican allies are like in an equally thick if not even thicker hermetically sealed bubble where like they think that the things that they are obsessing about are things that actual people care about and and i think that the twitter files is just a prime example of this like they really did believe like i I think that elon really did believe that he had um you know something something huge here. I mean, he said, he replied to Taibbi saying that if this is not a violation of the constitution, I don't know what is. I, and it I was think, like, clear, very his own question. Yeah, yeah, I was like, anything that's a violation of the constitution would be, uh, but this is not even in the ballpark. So I, I think that that shows that, that like, it's not, he's not like putting on a front, like he is obsessed over this stuff, over cancel culture and, and et cetera. And so he thinks everybody else is, um, I think it's concerning. Obviously I've closed my DMS. I used to have open DM policy, but like, you know, uh, his, the fact that he would leak people's emails, like internal emails of his own staff and former staff, I just think shows a lack of judgment and concern about how much he cares about our data. I think that's an obvious point, but uh, another one. Yeah. So speaking of cancel culture, it seems to have come for Kanye and Trump. Uh, 
I am of two minds. It, like, you know, look, we have this truth from from this weekend where he says he wants to suspend some of, terminate some of the articles of the Constitution that led to a fair amount of, uh, uh, you know, Biden to press Republicans to be asked about this. You have the uh, the Nazi dinner. And I'm of two minds. On the one hand, it, it feels as though his liability is becoming more clear to people, especially after the midterms, Trump's. and that he's committing Trump's liability. So he's committing the ultimate sin, which is not being politically valuable mm-hmm. as opposed to causing an insurrection. But on the other hand, this feels a lot like the conversation that was happening before the first votes in 2016, where, oh, he's not viable. Oh, he's not viable. He's too toxic. And then lo and behold, there's enough of a minority to uh, carry him uh, to victory in the primaries. How are you feeling right now about where the Republican Party is with Donald Trump? He's as weak as he's been since he came on board with the Republican base, you know, since he came down the escalator. I, I don't think that that's a, a a question. A big part of that reason is because that like people see a realistic off ramp to your point. It's not that he's vulnerable because the Republican, you know, scales have fallen from the eyes of Republican voters. And now they see the man for who he is like, that's not what has happened and to your point is they now have an alternate choice, hypothetical one in Ron DeSantis that is not Hillary or Joe Biden you know, or, uh, you know, a, a Democrat or a rhino cock never Trumper like me, right? Like they have a, a, a they have an off ramp that is someone else that they like, who's actually doing a Donald Trump imitation. So for that reason, I Trump is, is a lot more, um, a lot more vulnerable than he was. And I think that also just this sense of his invincibility, right? You can't understate that with the Republican base, you know, they never really liked Romney or McCain. And and like we, my people, we thrust them upon the vase voters and, and they they didn't they had to hold their nose and and and, so, and they lost both those candidates. You guys might not remember that. Um, but so then when <laughs> Trump wins, right, they the base voter, your your median Republican voter starts saying to themselves, well, fuck these guys. I can get everything I want. I can own the libs. I can like say racist stuff and we can win. Right. And so and so Trump had this hold over people, this power. Or I think that allowed him to do all this crazy shit because they're like, I don't know, it worked in 2016, um, uh, despite the fact that he, you know, lost the popular vote. And so I, I think that that hold on people is is weakening, right? Since they've lost now three straight times. And this was the central element of the big lie, right? In 2020. Is it was like, if I can convince people I didn't really lose the second time, then I can maintain that hold. And I think that slowly but surely there's a certain percentage, not the whole Republican Party, obviously, but there's a certain percentage of people that are like, you know, the spell is that that the electability spell is breaking a little bit. Now that doesn't mean that he couldn't win, of course. I, he's still yeah. totally viable, but but I think he's weaker than he's been. Yeah, I was gonna say like I have seen the argument. This is a this is like a New York Times pitchbot uh, take here <laughs> that uh, that Trump's weakness is actually making him stronger oh in God. the primary <laughs> because of the because of what's happening is since he's weaker than he's ever been, more potential Republican candidates for president are thinking about jumping into the field, and the more candidates you have in the field the easier it is because of the Republican primary nomination rules, which has mostly either winner take all or winner take most delegates in a state. And now you can win the nomination as a factional candidate who only polls, you know, yeah. 30, 40 percent. All right. So Pundit the Dog's going to like this because I am uh, against conventional wisdom on this. I, this is the okay, this good. is the wrong. This is the wrongest conventional wisdom about 2016. Donald Trump would have beat any one of the other 16 candidates one-on-one 
Like Donald Trump had almost a bare majority, despite the fact that there were 17 candidates. And he ended up with like 45% of the total vote. Like the people wanted Trump. Okay. <laughs> and then and in, in Florida is my best example of this. So I was working for the anti-Trump pack at the time. Uh, Jeb had dropped out. We convinced Cruz to to not compete in Florida. So it was really a head to head with Marco and Trump and John Kasich is a stubborn asshole. So he stayed in and got like 4% or something. I don't know. We can check the numbers, but it wasn't that many. And, and Trump crushed Marco in his home state head to head, the strongest supposedly, uh, you know, candidate uh, opposing him. So I, I, I don't think that that is really true. Someone is going to have to actually go out and beat Trump. If, if he's going to be beaten there, is there a hypothetical scenario where he could get 38% and DeSantis could get 36 and, Pence could get whatever, uh, you know, have a math person figure out how many are left. Um, yeah, like that's possible. And I think that's something to worry about then, you know, next fall or next winter. But I, I don't I think the bigger challenge is can you get enough people off of Trump? And and until he's starting to pull below the number that he was getting into his 2016 primary, you know, I, I just I don't know that all, I think all of this is like navel gazing, uh, you know, BS. And it's particularly and that, and that argument is particularly being advanced by Ron DeSantis fanboys who, you know, do, who want everything about Trump except, you know, his his like unique uh, derangement, psychological derangement. <laughs> and, you know, rather than getting someone who like has shown one iota of integrity over the last seven years. Yeah, I saw you. You're uh, you had a great piece on this. You're uh, you're not a fan of the uh, right wing rush to anoint Ron DeSantis as I'm the not. one true Trump slayer. Can you t- can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, sure. Right now, today. So again, if you look at the Sarah, we do the focus groups of the bulwark of the of the MAGA voters. Ron is their favorite. I'm not objecting to this. He is the second choice. But we've all seen this before. I mean, Scott Walker was everybody's favorite choice up until the minute he had to stand on a debate stage. And they're like, oh, my God. Speaking of limp dicks, like this guy's got nothing going, (laughs) you know, and they moved off him in two seconds. Right. So maybe that'll happen to Ron DeSantis. Maybe his little whiny you know, Ivy League kind of Trump imitation doesn't wear that well over two years. We don't really know. And so I just get I get a little upset that everybody's like, well, we have to anoint the Republicans have to anoint someone that has never even come close to criticizing Donald Trump. Not only that, who who ran the most obsequious, pathetic, like, I'm sorry, I was about to go too far on the penis jokes. <laughs> You'll get it. Uh, Advertisement you've ever seen in support of Donald Trump, where he's like reading his kids art of the art of the deal book and 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 you know building a fake Lego MAGA wall on the border. I mean, like you, this guy. We have to have this guy who's never criticized (laughs) Trump is so weak. Trump is, you know, uh, he's so pathetic. He's cost you three elections. He's having dinner with Nazis. Like, you know, he we can't. He wants to tear up the Constitution. Uh, he's not viable at all. So our only choice is to pick his most obsequious fluffer. I just, I, I it think is. it's a little early for that. that. I think it's a little. I got around to it. So, I, I think it's a little early for that. Is all I'm saying. Maybe yeah, someone else have... can have a try. I guess, I guess. Why not? Why not have somebody else who's like, you know, not Trump's little. Little little guy. Yeah. And there's, look, there's nothing worse than getting behind a fluffer who's too early. <laughs> That's what your point was. I don't understand. It's related to my point. Uh, the question, love it. <laughs> yeah, here's my question. You said in a hypothetical primary between Trump and DeSantis, if it's competitive 15 yeah. days out before the California primary, you're going to re-register as a Republican and vote for DeSantis. 
You make me sick to my fucking <laughs> stomach. John, look at I love you. it. Look at you. It that wallpaper true. may belong to gay people, but I don't know. It is, I don't know. I don't is, know if I'm looking at a gay person. It, it is true that you're mad at me. And what? you did fake your sickness on the last episode. And wow. you're just wow. coming oh, right now wow. to take I fake to COVID. on me. Okay, here's be the, the first. Thing. Here's the thing, <laughs> I, I would do that. I would do that because okay. it is, here's why. Because it would be a signal to the other people like me the former Republicans, the fucking people that hate and and resent Ron DeSantis with every fiber of our being, that that like just to end this national nightmare, to get rid of this guy that tried a coup, that that wants to tear up the Constitution, uh, that has myriad other problems we don't need to list. Like it, it's fine to just suck it up, check the Ron DeSantis box if that's the only option available, and then go for then go beat him. Can Joe Biden not beat Ron DeSantis? Did you see the way he went up against Charlie? I mean, like, is he really that scary, Ron DeSantis? I, I, I'm not. I don't know. That that's my view. Uh, I, I understand taking the other point, and you wanted to bring that up to just make sure I lose any, all credibility with the positive America <laughs> listeners. That's well, fine. Uh, we t- heard, I, Tim, I, but, Tim, I, I did read the whole piece, and and you did say that there was. There's a pot. You know, there you was, might vote the Democratic two primary. Exceptions. You might vote in the Democratic primary, candidates, yeah. right? If 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 for some reason Joe Biden doesn't just run unopposed. And also if, if Ron DeSantis says something, I guess Trump level crazy. No, that uh, says something, but I if Ron DeSantis ran, run, if Ron DeSantis runs as, which is also possible, I guess that he runs like D- Donald Trump's biggest flaws is that he didn't ban enough Muslims or separate enough children at the border. Right, right. And then, and so that's why I want to, I mean, you know, I guess it's possible, but I, I, I think that you can, you can, people, grown-ups, adults can carry the view at the same time that that Ron DeSantis is a despicable twat, and that like D- Donald <laughs> Trump is an existential threat to the country, and that like we should probably just do everything we can to stop an existential threat from the country from being president again, uh, even if that means supporting a twat. Let me ask you this: uh, Is Kevin McCarthy going to be one of or the strongest Speaker of the House in mm. history? Iron Fist, Kevin. Sort of call. Uh, <laughs> is he going to be Speaker of the House? Is he even going to be Speaker of the uh, House? I do think he's going to be Speaker of the House because there's not really a good second option. And the fantasy, though, I mean, I'm, trust me, I'm all about my man Bill Crystal on the West Wing fantasy that like Don Bacon and David Valadeo are going to team up with the Democrats to make Liz Cheney the Speaker or something. Uh, but I, I, that's just not really going to happen. Um, there aren't any moderate Republicans really in the House. There's a very small number. And and certainly not enough that are going to cross over to work with the Democrats. Um, I, I think that they could embarrass Kevin. I think that there's a lot of like Matt Gates is a petty bitch who lives for drama. So I do think that like he might want to embarrass <laughs> Kevin and make him do a vote where he loses. And he has to like go on to a second ballot or third ballot. You might remember this happened to Boehner. I think Boehner, I'm going from memory now, Boehner had like five or six ballots one time. And it took a very yeah. long time for him to get to 218. Um uh, so I, I think that could happen to Kevin, but there's just not a credible alternative. Um, so I do think if you're, if you, you know, are looking for a silver lining in the Kevin McCarthy speakership, I do think his life's going to be miserable. <laughs> I mean, it's just gonna be chaos yeah. for the next two years, right? Like, I guess the question is how much chaos, uh, is, is there going to be and like, how much is it going to be fun to watch and how much is it going to be awful because, uh, it'll screw all the rest of us too. Well, yeah. debt ceiling, for example, that's yeah, that's right. what I'm thinking of. I mean, I don't think that there's any. Yeah. I mean, the debt ceiling and the crazy investigations, I feel bad for people that don't have to get lawyers. And I was on this. I got invited to some Twitter space 
um, to speak. Uh, and Mick Mulvaney was one of the other speakers. And I was like, you know, I'm going to do that. I, I'm interested in what old Mick has to say. Um, and he was uh, he, he was saying that his advice was that among the things that he thought the new Republican House should do is investigate the politicization of the FBI and the way that they've treated former President Trump. Now, Mick is like on the team normalish side of the type of people that Kevin McCarthy talked to. Right. And and like even he is like, we need to investigate these fake conspiracies about how like liberals deep within the FBI, a famously famously woke progressive institution, the FBI, you know, <laughs> is targeting Donald Trump. And, and so if so think about if that's where Mick is, like like there's a whole just yeah, you know not- levels of crazy to his right and that and they're going to be making uh, McCarthy do a lot of stuff that I, I think will be harmful politically but it's annoying for the country for sure painful for certain people any big takeaways or lessons for you from the midterms anything that surprised you anything you yeah, man, walking away I, from that with I was um I, so I had to suffer through Arizona um for I was I did the circus I was down in Arizona for a week and I, man, I was really freaked out by the Carrie Lake campaign. It had, a, it had an emotional impact on me um, when he went to those rallies. Um, they were uh, like out of another world um, from the old types of Republican rallies that I went to back in the day, the boring ones. And um, and that crowd was rabid. They were angry. Um, they were conspiracy, conspiratorial. There was a standing ovation for a guy who, who refused to get the vaccine. I mean, like all kinds of weird shit was happening. And I I just I was a little too close to it. And I got worried that like that level of energy in Arizona was going to push her into a win. And I'm just I'm very happy that she didn't win. And I think that there is even, uh, you know, my cynicalness um, was uh, was abated my cynicism abated a bit uh, in the midterm because I, I I've always been a person that's like, you know, there are enough crossover voters. Democrats should be focused on them, not just turning out the base. They should focus on both. And, and I was even surprised the extent to which there were people, you know, who were Republican voters, really, for all intents and purposes, who just looked at these crazies and were like, no, I'm not. This is too far. You know, if you're trying to make Donald Trump an autocrat and you want to ban abortion at two weeks, like, I'm not going to do it. I, I just I can't go that far. And that was encouraging. And so that's nice. It's nice to have nice things. Right. And that was my big uh, takeaway from the election. That's good. Yeah. Any advice now thinking about the results of the midterm, like any advice for the Democratic Party ahead of 2024? Like, what are Democrats doing wrong? What could they be doing better sort of in the context of the results that we just uh, we just saw from your vantage point as, as chief cuck, chief cuck was the chief cuck. Well, my people are gettable. So don't forget about us. I I, I wrote about this a while back. Like I, I think that there are a lot of de- that you can do a lot of progressive stuff that you know that is not you're not going to lose favor with the potential gettable voters. You know by passing forth a very ambitious climate bill, for example, like that yeah. didn't cost you anything. Right? Like there, there's a lot of progressive stuff that you can get done. You know, um, as and and still try to appeal to these voters by put by pointing out the extremism of Republicans by throwing us a few bones now and then. And I think that Josh Shapiro's campaign in Pennsylvania is just a prime example of this. There is no world where you can describe him as like a centrist or whatever, but like he uh, or and Raphael Warnock in Georgia, for example. If you look at Warnock versus Abrams, 
I have nothing against Stacey Abrams. I, I think that Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams probably agree on everything um, pol- policy-wise. But Warnock just sold himself and positioned himself as like, hey, I'm a pastor from the suburbs. I'm a dad. I wear sweaters. I've got a dog. I'm like, I'm not obsessed with the elite media. You know, I don't need to be on the cover of magazines. Um, I, you know, you can trust me from time to time. If I need to work with a Republican, I will. And I think that's why he's going to win this week. Um, and, and you know, obviously he did eight, nine points better than Abrams. Part of that was that Kemp was a lot stronger than than Walker, of course. But I, but based on my time in Georgia, when I was interviewing some of these swing voters, a lot of for a lot of them, it was like, no, I, I like Kemp better than Walker. But I also liked Warnock better than Abrams. I felt like he cared more about me and my interests. But how much of that is, I mean, look, I, I, I hear you, but like, Stacey Abrams has worked incredibly hard to present herself in a way that is, you know, runs counter to any idea that she's some far left progressive. Like some of this is that she's been targeted by years of campaigns to make her seem uh, uh, more extreme than Raphael Warnock, right? Yes. And I think that there's certainly a, a misogyny element to it. But I it just you can you can do this yourself. Google image magazine cover Stacey Abrams magazine cover Raphael Warnock. I, I you know, I think that their vibes just matter to it now only to a certain percent, only to a certain slice of the electorate. But I think that if you're looking at people in, in suburban Georgia, a lot of them felt it's not like Raphael Warnock did, wasn't the uh, you know recipient of tons of negative ads over the course of a, of two cycles and two runoffs. So I, he was targeted too. I I just think that that, that strategy worked. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, you saw that. And, and other places around the country. And I think my big lesson from that is just is that you don't really have to pivot that far to the center. You know, you just have to think about, you know, how how people are, uh, you know, how those types of voters, the gettable swing voters are processing you as a candidate. Yeah. All right. Tim Miller. Tim Miller. Thanks for stopping by. There was no there was no beef. There was no secret beef between uh, us. Dude, there's I always COVID. there's always a little gay drama. You never know. You sure. know, could there's be. there could there's could stuff be. happening. Maybe I'm putting on a show now. Yeah, yeah. There's something that happened on those alt on the alt Twitter. I know you're on that alt Twitter. It's a different <laughs> John Favreau doesn't even know yeah, what's happening. Doesn't on know me. about alt Favreau Twitter. Favreau doesn't even know about alt Twitter. It's just a whole different world out Is there. Is that like Mastodon? <laughs> uh it's the opposite of Mastodon. It's actually <laughs> technically the opposite of Mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> um hopefully next time in LA, guys. Thanks so much for yes. having me. Come see us. All right. Thanks, Tim. All right. Thanks to Tim Miller for joining us today. And uh, we'll talk to you on Thursday. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Haley Muse and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Thanks to Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Sandy Gerard, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash podsaveamerica. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.